Thank you, Pastor Tim, and good morning again, church. It's good to be with you. It's good to see each of you. It's uh, always a a pleasure to have the opportunity to open God's Word uh, with you. If you've been with us, if you've been tracking, you know we've been doing a series in Mark's Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. Pastor Mark, last time, uh, brought us through chapter 14, and uh, Lord willing, this morning I hope to get us mostly through chapter 15, and then uh, Pastor Tim plans to finish up the series uh, in Mark chapter 16. Well, here's what I want us to see as I've thought and reflected on the text. Uh, Here's my main point uh, this morning. I'm going to give it to you out of the gate, let you uh, see this and hear this, and hopefully we'll see it as we walk through these verses uh, this morning. And it's this. The disciples of Christ, they see Jesus for who He is, they esteem Him for all that He's worth, and they imitate Him in His sufferings. Disciples see Jesus, they esteem Him, and they imitate Him. Let's look together at Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Mark 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had a, held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. At the end of chapter 14, where Pastor Mark left off last time, Mark records for us Peter's denial. Peter there denies Jesus in Mark 14. And here at the beginning of chapter 15, just as soon as it was morning, the text says just as soon as morning, the chief priests, the whole council together, the Sanhedrin, they're all together conspiring that they're going to turn Jesus over to Pilate and they're going to bring a political charge against him. We know from John's Gospel that they couldn't just claim blasphemy alone. If they just proclaim he's a blasphemer, that's not going to lead to capital punishment. No, they had to bring something else. They needed Pilate's cooperation. And we know Pilate was the Roman governor at the time. He served as the governor of Rome from 26 to 37 AD. And the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests, the leaders, the scribes, They want Pilate's cooperation. That is their goal. That's their intention. And Jesus' response here, it's amazing. You have said so. He neither fully confirms nor denies his kingship. If he fully confirms at this point, that's going to lead to immediate execution. But he also doesn't fully deny. He can't deny his true identity. The silence here of Jesus is stunning. It it is stunning. He he gives 
no defense. He has no need to give a defense. And throughout the Passion narrative, here and in the other Gospels, we see Jesus remains in complete control. He's completely in control and He's fully submissive to the will of His Father. And we see here that Pilate is amazed by His silence. And yet, Pilate delivers Him up. Pilate delivers Him up and has a hand in His execution. Let's look together there at verse 6. Now at the feast, He used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It was customary for Pilate, the Roman governor, to be in Jerusalem at this time, to be present there for the Passover, to kind of have a handle in keeping control and order over things. It, would, it was also custom for the Roman governor to release a criminal at the annual feast, to release up a prisoner. That was the normal custom. But what was not customary was to see what transpired at this annual Passover. Multiple times we see in the text, Mark records for us, that Pilate attempts to dissuade the crowd. Verse 9, look there again. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And then in verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And then 14, why? What evil has he done? From Pilate's perspective, Jesus is no political threat. He's not a typical rebel. He's not a typical insurrectionist. Again, a strong point is being made here by Mark that God is completely sovereign over the unfolding of each of these events. And the irony, what is ironic about what we see here is that the one who is actually guilty of murder and insurrection is the one who's pardoned, while the one who is innocent is condemned. Don't miss the weight there of verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate desirous to satisfy the needs, the wants of the crowd, He's amazed by the silence of Jesus and yet he has a hand in the scourging and the ultimate execution of Jesus. Pilate is not extraordinarily evil. He's ordinarily evil. He's not out of the ordinary evil. He's just ordinarily evil. 
Folks, He and the Romans, they represent each one of us. What a strong indictment this is on the depravity, the wickedness of the human heart apart from supernatural transforming grace. This is your predicament. This is my predicament. We're no different from Pilate. We're no different from the Jews. In their position, apart from the sovereign transforming grace of God, we do the exact same thing. Only His grace overcomes our stubborn will. Only His transforming grace overcomes our fear of man and causes us to fear God more than we fear man. As we sang that verse earlier from that familiar hymn, the dying thief, he rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, Wash all my sins away. We're just as vile as the thief on the cross. We are just as in need of supernatural grace. We need God to remove a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. It just doesn't make sense. But, 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 to those who are called, to those who are being saved, Christ crucified is the power and it's the wisdom of God. The good news of the gospel is the truth that there is a power that can change hearts so wicked and so desperate that they would choose to put the innocent, perfect Lamb of God on a cross and allow the guilty to walk free. Sin separates us from God. We need something we cannot provide. We need the perfect life, the atoning death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in our desperate In helpless state, God makes a way. He provides a way by sending His one and only Son, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, who took upon Himself our sin so that we, the guilty, might go free. Christ incurred the judgment we deserved. And only by His dying do we truly live. Only by Christ dying do we truly live. This is the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, you may be amazed by Jesus. You may be fascinated with Him. But amazement and fascination alone is not enough. It's never going to lead you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Him daily. Amazement, it can at times be a step towards faith. But let us not confuse amazement and fascination with Jesus with genuine faith in Jesus. Genuine faith is generated by God alone. Only God, only God can cause the deaf to hear and the blind to see. And His saving work in us, it leads to something more than amazement and fascination. It leads to an awe. It leads to a fear and a reverence for God that helps us overcome the fear of man.
Pilate was more concerned with pleasing man than he was with pleasing God. Thus, he allowed Christ to be crucified. Let's look now at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We see Mark here in these verses, he's emphasizing the mockery, the ridicule that Jesus receives prior to his death. The Romans, the chief priests, the scribes, even the thieves there with him on the cross, they mock and they ridicule him. The purple cloak, the crown, the salute, it all represents royalty and yet it's all mockery. Again, the irony is that the king they mock is the king of the Jews. And he's not only the king of the Jews, but he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And following this scourging, Jesus, Mark tells us, he's too weak to even carry his own cross. Simon of Cyrene, one from from northern Africa, who the text tells us is the father of Rufus and Alexander, likely to that Mark's audience would have known. They were uh, believers at the church in Rome who Mark's readers would have likely known. The text tells us that Simon carries the cross for Jesus. He carries it outside of the city, which it has to be taken outside of the city to a dreaded place where he will further suffer and die. In verse 23 The text tells us that Jesus refuses the wine with myrrh that is offered to him. Instead, he accepts God's will in a fully conscious state, fully aware of all that is happening, fully in control. 
He's crucified at the third hour. It's early in the morning. It's approximately 9 a.m. And Pilate, the way he justifies his actions is political. He politically justifies it by putting on Jesus the charge, King of the Jews. This would have been seen as a direct threat against Caesar, the Roman emperor. We also see in these verses that the crowd demands a sign. Verse 32 there, Come down from the cross that we can see and, and believe. And how true is this today of many who want, they want to see, see something visible with their eyes. They want a sign. They demand a sign. But true faith doesn't demand a sign. The authority and power of Jesus demonstrated His divinity. But this authority and power, it couldn't be demanded. It couldn't be coerced. True faith is something that is received. It comes from seeing Jesus and seeing Him exposed. It's a gift. And Jesus refusing to come down from the cross was not an indication of any lack of power or any lack of authority. But instead, it was a demonstration of His willingness to remain fully submissive to the will of His Father. Mark's emphasis here in his Gospel, it's not so much on the gruesome details of crucifixion, though crucifixion was gruesome and lowly and awful. But instead, Mark focuses on what does Jesus' death accomplish? Look there with me at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us wait and see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. At noon, darkness covers the entire land. What, what happens here is not a solar eclipse. Instead, it's a supernatural act of God. We know from the Scriptures, we see in other places, darkness indicates judgment. Darkness is a sign of judgment. In Amos chapter 8, referring there to Israel's destruction, we find something very similar. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. We see here in verse 34, for the first time since verse 2, the first time since verse 2, Jesus speaks. And he cries out in Aramaic, that which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words we see at the beginning of Psalm 22. Christ, the perfect 
innocent Lamb. He is wholly forsaken by the Father and fully exposed to the depth, the fullness of humanity's sin. The One who knew no sin became sin. He became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There is darkness because He endures the wrath, the judgment we deserve. All this, as Peter writes, so that He might bring us to God. Only Christ can bring us to God. And then we get a final cry there in verse 37, which in John's Gospel we get the cry, It is finished. It's done. It's complete. I have fulfilled the work my Father had for me to do. And as the curtain is torn in two from the top to the bottom, the barrier between God and man because of sin, it's broken down. As the author of Hebrew notes, annual sacrifices, they're no longer necessary. Christ's sacrifice once and for all is able to take away sins. And we can, with confidence, we can draw near the throne of grace. Amen. Every week we pause, we have our time of confession and pardon, and that is because of this fact, this reality. Christ took upon Himself our sin. So now with confidence we can draw near and have hope that our sins are taken away. Prior to Jesus' death, Mark is careful. There's a a strong point being made here in the text. Prior to death, we see nothing but mockery and ridicule. Immediately following death, from a most unlikely candidate, a Roman centurion who's overseeing his execution, praises, adores, says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There is a strong contrast, a strong point being made by Mark that Christianity stands or falls on the death of Jesus. Christ is ridiculed and mocked so that we might be accepted and counted worthy. He's spat on so that we might be cleansed and purified. He is stripped so that we might be clothed with His righteousness. And He's crushed that we might be healed. Unable to carry His own cross, He enables us to carry ours. Praise God. Praise God. You know, as I was thinking, I was thought on this text most of the week and just kind of kept thinking, Lord, just show me what, you know, I've read this before, I know this, we see it in other Gospels, but what, what, what's happening here? What's the big takeaway? And, and here's what he just kept impressing on me as I kept refla- reflecting and thinking. There's just such a strong contrast here between Pilate and this Roman centurion. The contrast between Pilate on the one hand, the centurion on the other. The centurion's gaze, his focus is upward. He's looking up, right? He's looking at Jesus. He sees Him exposed on the cross. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. It makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, where we get there in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking 
to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The centurion was, his gaze, his focus, it was on Jesus. He saw Jesus' true identity. And Pilate is more concerned with looking over to the right and to the left. Looking at, at the crowd. Looking at the voices on his side. His eyes are more fixed on man and the fear of man. And how true this is of us. It's so easy for us to be distracted and lured away or lured to sleep by lesser concerns, lesser idols on the right and left when the suffering Son of God is before us as the only one worthy of all our praise and all our devotion. Friend, are you here this morning? Are you just, are you tired? Are you weary? Is this race, this race of endurance, is it, is it wearing on you? Can I just encourage you this morning? Look, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, he had a vision of joy, he had a vision of heaven, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In a few minutes, we're, we're planning to sing together the song, I will glory in my Redeemer. The second verse reads like this, I will glory in my Redeemer, my life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in Him alone. Oh, that God would move in our hearts so that, so that we could sing this and it, it be true at the depth, at the core of who we are, that we would be satisfied and content and delight in Him and Him alone. Folks, when our hearts are here, when God gets us here, giving Him a blank check with our lives, it's really not that big of a deal. It, it makes the most logical sense because we see Him as the only one worthy of all our love and devotion. Giving Him that blank check makes sense. It's the appropriate response for a heart that is satisfied in Him and Him alone. If we are to see Jesus correctly, it necessitates seeing Him on the cross. The, the centurion sees Jesus on the cross and he sees something different. He witnesses an agony. Yes, it is a deep physical agony. But it transcends physical agony. It's a deep psycho-spiritual agony that can only be explained by the response, truly, this man was the Son of God. And if you're here this morning, I don't know if this is you, but, but you may be here and think, you know, I'm just too far off. I have wandered. I've strayed too far. I'm too far from the grace of God. Would this encourage you? A Roman centurion who was in charge of Jesus' death saw Him for who He is. His life was changed. His eyes were open. God opened the eyes of this Roman soldier. No one is too far 
from the love and grace of God for Him to reach down and open blind 